KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. What plan will you follow now? Plan 9. Plan 9. Ah, yes. Plan 9 deals with the resurrection of the dead. If only we could resurrect TCM Underground, which will be broadcasting its final movie on February 24th. You see? You see? Your stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid! Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space launched TCM Underground in 2006. And now, it'll be the final film that airs under that brand. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Rather than mourn the passing of TCM Underground, I want to celebrate what it represented and applaud it for all the joy it brought to cinephiles over the years. And to praise it for rescuing some films from obscurity by introducing them to a new generation. Former TCM programmer Millie DeCherico has just co-written the book TCM Underground, 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. I'll be talking to her about the films she's programmed and what made them special. TCM Underground showcased films that were ignored, underappreciated, misunderstood, maligned, or sometimes just lost and in need of some loving care. As the former TCM programmer who helped define what TCM Underground meant, DeCherico did what great curators do, shared her love and passion for films that she wanted more people to see. Because all you of Earth are idiots. Now you just hold on, Buster. No, you hold on. That's right. Hold on while I take one quick break before getting to my interview with Millie DeCherico. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. As someone who's always loved cult films and films made outside the mainstream, the loss of TCM Underground is just heartbreaking. But I'm delighted that Millie DeCherico and her co-author, Quatoya Murray, have highlighted 50 of the hundreds of films that aired under the TCM Underground banner in a book that we can cherish and refer back to. I began my interview by asking Millie to lay the ground rules for what kinds of films qualify for the TCM Underground label. When I was programming the franchise, I was just trying to cast a wide net of possible titles. A lot of it was kind of from that kind of standard cult canon. So, you know, directors that we all know and love, like David Lynch and Ed Wood and John Waters and, you know, Roger Corman films and whatnot. But over the years, I think I was trying to expand it a little bit and try to pull in some quirky melodramas and some offbeat comedies. So I was just trying to kind of create like a big pool to choose from. And 
at this point, I feel like that's kind of the the thing that really unites the titles that have aired. And there was over 400 or something by the end of it. But I, I feel like it's anything that's just kind of a little off, offbeat and interesting and various levels of cult, obviously, but they all kind of just fit into this like late night attitude. And is part of that late night attitude kind of films that you feel just need to have a little more love? Yeah, I think so, because obviously with uh, as being a programmer, you kind of have your own perspective on that. But for me, I just thought there are titles that exist that maybe don't get readily seen as like a cult classic, but that definitely are not out there that don't get seen very often. Things that are not on home video. That was kind of the case with a film like Wild Seed, which both played as part of Underground and I also wrote about it in the book, which is that it's, you know, kind of like a teen film almost from the 60s, but it's also like it was not on home video and it rarely played on television. Hey, kid. Yes? So there's, there's a couple of cops just pulled up a patrol car out here and they're talking to the attendant. So you better stay where you are until they're gone, okay? I'll let you know when they're clear, okay? You hear me? You hear me? Yes, all right. Just keep quiet. And it just happened to star Michael Parks, who is obviously this, like, uh, actor that was really affiliated with Tarantino and, like, cult film. So it just kind of fit, even though maybe the film is kind of more in line with something like Rebel Without a Cause than it would be, like, Blood Feast or whatever. But that... that for me was like making those choices, I think was definitely about that. It was just stuff that needed love, right? And you co-wrote this book. So what kind of defines each of your personalities in terms of the films that you gravitated towards? Well, that's interesting because uh, Toya, when she first came to TCM, she was, you know, very interested in working with cult film and with Underground specifically. And you know, just from talking to her and being friends with her, I, I discovered we were kind of like, you know, kindred spirits. We kind of like the same things. And I, I sort of trusted her taste and trusted her opinions on things. And all the stuff that she really liked and championed in her writing were, were things that I loved too. So there wasn't too much of that. I mean, I felt like we were both kind of similar in in the stuff that we liked and our kind of positioning on the book. But I think that there was just certain genres, I think that she gravitated more towards, like she's a big horror fan. And not to say that I'm not a horror fan, but it was that kind of thing where it's like, well, she's going to do some horror stuff. Maybe I'll pick some other things. And of course I'm really big into like melodrama and like really quirky, strange dramatic films, you know, some involving Elizabeth Taylor or, you know, other classic actresses or whatnot. So I kind of went in that direction a little bit more. And I just think it was, it was really just trying to give the book like a good spread. Like we wanted to cover a wide variety of things. There are also things that I just felt like I would love to write about this film particularly because it feels like it doesn't really get written about much versus something that was just a little bit more you know, had been written about a lot and uh, you could find out a lot of information about, right? So that's kind of how we went about choosing things is just sort of keeping these little metrics in mind. Well, I just love kind of the diversity of the films that are in there because, you know, you have some that are, I think, underappreciated and incredibly well-made like Honeymoon Killers. But then you also have some stuff that's you know, Hollywood produced with studios and much more mainstream. So 
kind of what were some of the films that you really wanted to see included in this? Between Toy and I, I felt like, you know, we have our own sort of personal experience with films, but also, you know, we're women of color. And so we thought, okay, well, we definitely gravitate towards that. We, we, a lot of the films that we featured were either made by women or queer filmmaker or people of color. So it was just that kind of thing. And that wasn't really intentional necessarily, but it was like, we have an opportunity to kind of go through the list and pick films. And why don't we talk about something like this versus again, something that had been talked about a lot already. And you're right. I mean, some of these movies are really obscure. Like I think the pyramid is a perfect example of that. Have you ever experienced your own death? Any of you? You should try it sometime. I believe there is magic. Real magic. You know, that's something that had aired on TCM Underground a long time ago, but is hard for people to watch because it's just not really out there for people to rent or, or whatnot. And that one in particular, I think people have told me about as being like a pretty obscure pick. But then when we had the opportunity to write about a John Waters movie, I was like, well, why don't we, why not? you know, talk about polyester, which is actually his most commercial film, like at that point, like he had, you know, of course made like Pink Flamingos, but polyester was the first one where he actually got like a big studio budget. And because it just felt to me like, well, if everyone's going to talk about Pink Flamingos, then like, maybe we can talk about polyester, which I actually think is a, has a lot more transgressive moments, if you will, than a lot, than a lot of people would maybe think. They went down that way, but I don't know which room. I picked up her scent already. She bit night in Paris perfume. I can smell it anywhere. This is it. Hold this. What the hell? Coitus interrupted. Get out of here, Francine. Oh, you didn't die. Right in the act of adultery. Well, I won't stand for this, Elmer. I want a divorce and a big fat settlement to go along with it. You'll never get a penny out of me, you fat hunk of cellulite. I only support the women I love. Like I said, we were trying to cover a spread, uh, and there's definitely different like levels of filmmaking and levels of money, I guess, involved. So, And were you selecting from films that had previously screened as part of TCM Underground, or were you just looking at everything? we decided that to narrow the focus a little bit more that we were just going to write about the titles that it aired on underground and the franchise had been on for over 15 years. So we had a really big bank of titles to choose from over 400 or so. And so that gave us a lot of options to choose from, which was great. So, And tell people how the book is divided up, because you kind of group the films in categories, not exactly genres, but kind of into some subcategories. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because we went back and forth a little bit about how to arrange the book, because I'm obviously a big student of these types of books, right? So I grew up reading like the Danny Perry cult movies books and, you know, the psychotronic guide to film. And, you know, I was really about film reference guides because you know I grew up in the era before the internet. So that's all I had. <laughs> and a lot of those books were um, alphabetical, right? And so when we came to this book and trying to set on how to organize it, we thought, okay, well, we could just do it alphabetically, sure. But I think me being a programmer, it just was sort of like, well, I like arranging things by themes, really. And you're right. It's not like specifically by genre, but we 
went through the list and we did see some like commonalities between titles. You know, some of them are more broad than others. Like there's a big section that's just kind of like mind melters and, and strange films. And that's kind of a catch-all for a lot of different things. But then, you know, we do have, you know, films like a section that's specifically about crime and, you know, specifically about, I guess, like melodrama. It was just fun to do it that way. I think it makes it kind of interesting. It allows people to kind of like pop around a little bit more than I think if it was alphabetical. Well, and you had Patton Oswalt do your intro. And one of the things he notes is he says, don't just read this book from front to back, like kind of jump around and see what catches your interest. And is that kind of part of what you wanted it to be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the book is really visual. So it is fun to kind of pop around. And I think he has the right take. I mean, I certainly encourage people to do that because when you're just kind of open the book and you look around, you're like, oh, there's like all these pictures and it's, you know, very visually interesting. So I agree. Just don't read it cover to cover. Just pick it up and look through it and start in the middle, start at the end. Well, it's also the kind of thing where... If you want to try and find something you haven't seen and you're in a certain mood, it's nice because you can go like, oh, yeah, I kind of want to see something like horror. And then you have the Fright Club section with some really nice, diverse selections in there. But then you can kind of pick your your mood to match what uh, you might be looking for. Oh, definitely. Like sometimes... Yeah, you're definitely in the mood to be scared and you just pop over to that section. Or sometimes you're just like, well, I just want to watch something weird. And maybe like I'll head to the weird section and then watch like Head by, the, you know, the monkey's head or whatever. The monkeys. Mickey, Davey, Mike, Peter in Head. That's right. Head. What's it all about? Only Victor Mature's hairdresser knows for sure. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, that that to me is like really useful as somebody who watches a lot of movies because you don't necessarily when you when you're out in like streaming services or when you're just there you don't see things by tone, right? You see, see things usually alphabetically or just basically like in these kind of like algorithmic categories. So, it's kind of cool that you could do that with the book. Well, talking about one of the ones that's kind of the mind melters, weird ones that's out there, um, the Belladonna of Sadness is one that I don't think gets talked about or appreciated as much as it should. Yeah, I mean, it's such a such a interesting animated film. And we were really, really thankful to have the opportunity to play that restored version when it came out. And... I just think it's such a gem. There's just so many people that have discovered it for the first time only recently. And the animation style is unreal. It's just so lyrical and beautiful. And I know that the story itself is kind of hard to process sometimes, but the when you match that tone with kind of like what you're seeing, it just creates this like you know, really interesting sort of dichotomy of of content, but then the style. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a cool movie that I, I really, really just feel like pe a lot of people haven't seen it and should, you know? And how did you kind of gravitate towards these films initially? Was this something that you've always kind of liked these kind of movies? Or was there kind of some seminal moment where you saw something and said like, wow, they're making this stuff and where can I find more of it? Yeah, you know, I think when I was a teenager, I just was really interested in 
countercultural things like transgressive art, like punk rock. Uh, I just like wanted to be in the world of sort of like cult film and, and cult music and art and books. You know, I just was like really interested in that sort of life. And like, I just would go down to the city, <laughs> uh, which for me was downtown Atlanta. And I would just go sit in video stores or Tower Records or like these like cool in town bookstores and just sort of like look through things. And, you know, I would hang out at the video stores that I would frequent and just like listen to people talk. Like I listen to people come in the video store and talk about like their favorite movies and whether or not this movie was going to make it to VHS because it was still a VHS era. It was, it was just sort of like everything. I just wanted to be around it. And then I watched a lot of TV at the time, you know, there wasn't a ton of cable channels, but you know, some of them had like late night stuff. And then HBO, of course, was a huge thing for me. So so when you were programming TCM Underground, were you kind of suggesting films that you already knew or were you kind of like seeing what they had available or what was becoming available? Did you do a lot of research to kind of find titles that would fit that uh, kind of category? Yeah, I, I so I think at the very beginning, there was definitely like a, here's, I made a list of things. There was like a wish list. Uh, and then we kind of went down the wish list and then, you know, we were able to get a lot of that stuff. And then it became like, well, let's see what's out there in like catalogs. So a lot of it was combing through lists of titles from studios or from distributors and saying like, oh, that seems cool. That would work, you know, that kind of thing. And then I think eventually as the, you know, over the years, we've seen so much restoration and so many blu-ray releases of titles like in the cult world i mean there's so many boutique labels now and archives are doing a lot of this like cult movie restoration work now that it almost became a thing where suddenly there was like great quality masters for things that i was like well cool like now it's they're kind of coming to me like the you know the world has changed so much where we're not necessarily you know, having to hunt down things as much as we used to, which is great. It just makes my job easier to have somewhere like Agfa or somewhere like Vinegar Syndrome say, hey, we're working on this, 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 and this. And so that was really cool to see all that. And it was, you know, obviously very helpful. But yeah, I mean, to to have a, a weekly franchise for 15 or so years, like, you don't want to like outdo yourself at the beginning and then be like, oh no, now what? So there's a method to it that I figured out over the years, but it's just had gotten better at the very beginning. It was hard to, I mean, it was like, oh gosh, I don't even know. Like this studio had a copy of this movie and it was just in really bad shape or they didn't have TV rights. And then all of a sudden all this stuff gets worked out somehow and it's on Criterion Collection. And you're like, oh, I got a Criterion Master of multiple maniacs. I cannot believe that that happened. So, yeah. And just to reference another one of the categories, I do love the domestic disturbances because this brings together like a lot of films that maybe wouldn't always be grouped together. But I mean, these are wonderful. You've got Polyester and Eating Raul and Possession and Remember My Name and then Secret Ceremony. Secret Ceremony, a tense, suspenseful drama of human desire in its deepest, most sinister aspect. But Chenchi's still a child. Chenchi, a child. Oh. 
That's disgusting. Yeah, that, this was, um, you know, obviously like a section that I was very involved in <laughs> because I I like melodrama and even the classic stuff like the Douglas Sirk stuff. And, you know, I love a Joan Crawford 50s vibe. And but I felt like there were certain titles that I think Ha- were sort of generally categorized as like a horror film, like Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. An unsuspecting boy comes home to murder. Suddenly, his life becomes a nightmare. Did you kill him? No. Was it the vicious act of a tormented stranger, or is it someone close to home? Caught in a web of bloody horror, he must find the truth or be the next victim. A chilling nightmare explodes in pure terror. See Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. It was kind of like, well, this movie is also kind of a melodrama too because it deals with like an aunt and her nephew. And there's kind of this, um, this kind of melodramatic element to it because... She is like, I mean, you know, it kind of delves in that sort of uh, grand dame guignol theme, which is, you know, an older woman who's trying to trap somebody that she loves, right? And I'm like, that is a function of melodrama as well as horror, right? And so I felt like, okay, well, a lot of these movies are, are, are weird melodramas. And the same thing with Secret Ceremony, which... I mean, I wouldn't say that Secret Ceremony is a straight up horror film, but that movie is very strange. And it de- it definitely deals with family. Are you hurt? Who was he? Listen, mysterious bitch, you not you cow. I don't need any instructions in fatherhood from you. If you don't shut your foul mouth. There are doors to lock against the terror outside, but what about the evil within? And sort of, and the other thing about it is that these are largely stories about women too, which melodrama I think was maligned for so long because they were women's pictures and they were about women's stories and stuff. So I kind of wanted to like reclaim a little bit of, of that and say, well, you know, these are actually like really interesting, compelling, deeply strange titles t- sometimes, even though they're sort of like pushed off into like that melodrama category. You mentioned Wild Seed was one of these films that was kind of less well-known. Are there any other titles uh, in this collection where they were kind of films that were discoveries for you? They were films that you didn't come to kind of TCM underground knowing that this was something I wanted to champion, but something that you just like, wow, I haven't heard of this. I'm going to see it. And now I love it. Yeah. I mean, I will say that we included a movie by Sarah Jacobson called Mary Jane's not a version anymore. And I had known who Sarah Jacobson was when I was growing up because we're kind of contemporaries. Like, you know, she was definitely around in the nineties and I, that's kind of like when I came of age. So I remember, I remember hearing about her and I remember her doing music videos for bands that I liked, but it wasn't until her box set came out from ACFA that I was able to like really see some of these films. And I mean, I had never seen Mary Jane's not a version anymore until 
fairly recently and especially like in the restored quality that it's in because it's truly an independent film so it's like that thing where i'm like well i'm kind of seeing it for the first time and this is just such an amazing film Let me show you how special sex can be. I think I've used that line myself. Is this a family picture? Maybe I'll just masturbate for the rest of my life. Hey, your hand is your best friend. It just seems like no matter what I do, I can't get it right. It's made by a you know woman director, and she had a lot to say about female sexuality and female pleasure, and that's just stuff that was like still, I think, really bold and interesting even now so I just was like when we had the opportunity to even like really talk about her films I was like let's do it I I was very impressed by I mean she had a very short career she died pretty young in her 30s but everything she did was really impressive to me and you could just say like gosh if if she had lived she could have made so many incredible things and she was such a bold person too like just the way that she she had to self-promote a lot of her films and i mean there's a grand tradition of that in cult cinema is people who really like you know have to go out there and, and do all their own work to get the film seen so i don't know it just was like I was just so happy to have finally been able to play that on the network, especially because it would have been unheard of, I think, if it hadn't been restored. I mean, I wouldn't have even known where to get television rights for something like that, you know? Sometimes you see a film where you love it, it's great, it's well-made, but it's not the kind of film that you necessarily want to watch over and over again. But a lot of these underground titles are really films where I don't know what the connection is, but you just feel like you need to revisit them regularly. And I'm just wondering, what do you think is kind of that appeal of these particular kinds of films? That's interesting. That's an interesting question. Because... I think for me personally, the idea of watching some of these films again over and over is almost this like <laughs> confirmation that I am really in, like I'm I'm championing this film. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like this idea of like, did I actually just see that? I know we saw it. I know we were like watching this crazy cult film together and we all processed it, but then I'm like, I need to go back and actually watch it again. Did did I think I saw what I just saw? So there's some of that like, <laughs> like confirmation that it exists type of thing, right? But I also think too, like a lot of like a cult about, you know, the whole thing of cult really is that it's stuff that you can share. And so a lot of times I find myself like rewatching some of these films with other people who haven't seen it. And that's fun. It's a fun thing to like kind of watch these titles again with other people with different perspectives and different attitudes and you know I mean that's kind of how I felt about Possession actually was that uh it's one of those movies that I have seen many many times but then I I've watched them with different people in my life so I've watched it with like family I've watched it with friends different types of friends and so I'm always like waiting to hear what the reaction is from people and so I think that that is like part of it too is that you're just kind of like reevaluating the film on your own but then also like 
having different like cinema experiences with other folks is you know another reason to watch them again so well you mentioned watching with other people and i do feel like a lot of these films are films that you want to see with a group because you want to know like is everybody as you know is everybody as amazed at this particular moment that kind of uh you know what the hell just happened and when you all see it together and you feel like a a uniform gasp of the audience or something it just seems like there's something about that community experience of seeing it in a theater with other people that makes these films particularly good to watch yeah i mean i have to say like we did a screening of xanadu when the book came out here in atlanta and it was like it's just so fun to watch a movie like that with other people, you know, people like singing at the end and like people finding certain parts funny. And, you know, I've seen that movie by myself and it's just not the same. Like, yes, I can watch Santa do alone and figure out, you know, the headspace to process it on my own. But then when you're just like with other people, like sometimes there's a part of the movie that people really connect with that you're like, oh, I never even thought about that. Or, you know, it's funny to watch other people react to something that maybe you missed or maybe, you know, you didn't think about in a, in that way. So yeah, the communal aspect is really funny. And it feels like you're kind of good you're kind of like going through something together. <laughs> like you're all on a roller coaster together or something like that. It's like really fun. So. Well, sometimes when they're really bad films, I do remember seeing like The Room repeatedly with friends and it's, it's like, you know, you've been in the foxhole together and you've shared this experience and you have the same kind of PTSD about certain things and it's like you bond over it. <laughs> A hundred percent. I totally agree. And a lot of these films, too, feel like, you know, they feel like comfort food in a sort of way. They're the films that you return to because there is something. And I think there's also something special about films that don't have everything at their disposal in terms of budget and studio backing that makes what they've accomplished kind of like all the more wonderful to appreciate. Yeah, I mean, you know. There's a couple of these films that I sort of watch sort of semi-regularly. Like I always try to watch The Salad Partner at Christmas just because it feels like you have to. The world of that movie is really interesting and it's kind of cozy because it takes place during Christmas time, even though there's like a huge crime going on. But it's like that thing of like, it's taking place within the mall and people's apartments. And it's just like a vibe as the kids say. So I, I like to watch that semi-regularly if I can and, but then there's stuff like like when you watch the world's greatest sinner that that movie is kind of awe-inspiring because it is truly like one man's singular vision it may not be a hundred percent watchable at every moment but there are times where you're just like it's sort of the audacity of it in a weird way is it's just sort of like part of why you're there so yeah, it's different different tones. I mean, it's like 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 some of these movies, yeah, they they maybe are hard to watch over and over and over again, but sometimes just like watching something like a little rough around the edges or something that's just very specifically like one person's vision at all costs is fascinating. So All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about 50 must-see films of the TCM underground quality. Thanks, Beth. I'm so appreciative of you. You've always been a big champion, so I, I very much appreciate it. 
That was author and former TCM programmer Millie DeCherico. Her new book is TCM Underground, 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. I'm so grateful to Millie for all the films she introduced me to and for being dedicated to an underground aesthetic that said there's room in the world for films of all kinds. So join me tonight for Plan 9 from Outer Space and grab a copy of Millie's book so you can always be reminded of the rebel spirit that fueled TCM Underground. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Agamondo, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.